In the book of Proverbs chapter 1, I want you to notice this from verse 20. It says, wisdom, everybody say wisdom, calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses, at the openings of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Verse 23, turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you and I'll make my words known to you. If you hold your place there in chapter one in these verses we just read, just look over a page or so in chapter four. The scripture is very clear in verse five. He says, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget it nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. She'll preserve you, love her. She'll keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. So if the scripture is telling you and I to get wisdom and telling us that wisdom is the principal thing, that's the first thing that you need, then you ought to be asking the follow-up question, where do I go? Where do I go to get this wisdom? If this wisdom is what I need, you're telling me I need it. You're telling me it's the principal thing. Okay, cool. Where's it at? Where do I go to get the wisdom? Well, that's what we just read in, in chapter one, verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud outside. Wisdom raises her voice in the open squares, in the chief concourses. Listen to this from the Amplified Translation. And if you guys have that and want to put it on the screen, you can. But in the Amplified Bible, it says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the markets. She cries at the head of the noisy intersections. In the chief gathering places, at the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. I want you to notice where wisdom's hanging out. Aren't you thankful God did not put his wisdom in some far off place, hidden in some ancient temple at the top of some mountain somewhere that you have no idea how to find, but you got to go try to find it. And when you get there, you get three questions and that's it for the rest of your life because that's where the wisdom of the universe and the ages is hiding out. That's not where the wisdom of God is. Where's the wisdom? We just read it. Wisdom's crying out. Where? In the street. Wisdom's crying out. Where else? In the markets. Wisdom's raising her voice at the noisy intersections. Can I tell you what's so significant and so special about these places that that's why wisdom, the wisdom of God would be hanging out there? You want to know what's so significant about them? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. The only thing that makes these places significant and the only reason that wisdom would be in these places is because you're there. That's because this is where you are living your life. That's why the wisdom of God's hanging out right there, out in the streets. Because every day you wake up, you leave the house, you're on your way here, you're on your way to work, you're on, to, on your way to a meeting, you're on your way to these different places, you're out there in the streets. Guess who else is out there talking, wanting to talk to you, wanting to have conversation with you, wanting to lead you, wanting to guide you, wanting to correct you, wanting to, wanting to direct you. Guess who else is hanging out in the street? Wisdom. The wisdom of God. Why? Because that's where you need it. 
Do you notice it said wisdom is in the markets? Plural, the markets. So I don't care if you're in the supermarket or the stock market. (laughs) Wisdom is hanging out right there, talking to you, leading you, guiding you. We need some supermarket wisdom, ladies and gentlemen. Don't eat that. (laughs) Maybe perhaps stop eating that. We need some stock market wisdom, huh? Could you use some of that in your life? Sow here, spend here, invest here. The wisdom of God is available to you and to me right out there in the streets, in the markets. The one that caught my attention most was what the Amplified Bible said about wisdom crying out in the noisy intersections. What is an intersection? Well, chapter 8, if you flip over there, it echoes these same things. It says in verse 1, Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. The New Living Translation says at the crossroads. That's what an intersection is. It's a place where two paths meet. It's a place in the road where you have to make a decision. What direction am I going in from here? And I'm so thankful that that is where God put his wisdom. Because where else do you need it more than in an intersection where you need to make a decision in your life? Am I going continuing straight? Do I hang a left? Do I turn right? And I thank God that that is where he put his wisdom. I told you these are some of the things that we're walking through experiencing in our own lives right now. Towards the end of last year, we were thinking a certain way about our ministry and about our direction. And about fall of 2018, Man, the Lord just arrested us and began talking to us and causing us to look in a place we hadn't looked before and or hadn't looked recently, I should say, and uh, just woke up some things on the inside of us. And when January got here and I was seeking him about the direction for our year and specifically about the letter that I was getting ready to write to our partners of our ministry, I said, Lord, what would you say to him about this year? He gave me two words, course correction course correction. And immediately he took me to the scripture in Proverbs about wisdom standing there in the intersection. Now what is a course correction? It's a correction that you make while you're already on your way. Starting the process is a good thing. You're never going to get where you're supposed to be. You'll never arrive in that wealthy place that we're talking about unless and until you start And you take a step, that first step. But just as critical to you arriving in that place as it is you starting the process, just as important is you being willing to make these course corrections along the way. The example I was giving our staff and and this group that we meet with on a monthly basis, we're talking about some of these things. In our office, our ministry, just about 15 minutes from our house, not very far. But do you know how many turns I have to make to arrive there? And it's not even very far away. How many turns before I even get out of my own neighborhood, before I get off our street, onto the main street, onto the other street, turning onto that one, into this one, into that one, and then into our property. I don't know how many different turns there are between where I live and where I'm headed in the morning. Now you would think, man, it would be great to see I live that way. I'm just going to start going that way. If that was your attitude, you're not going to make it out of the building. 
You're going to be running into walls. You're going to be running into all kinds of things. And if you are unwilling to course correct along the way, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be aggravated. You're going to get depressed. And eventually, if you're unwilling to course correct, you're going to find somebody else to blame it on. And if you stick with that, it'll end up at God. And you're just going to stand right there banging into that wall, banging into that wall, and banging into that wall over and over if you don't stop and course correct. That's what these intersections are about. Making course corrections along the way. You notice what wisdom said there in chapter one? What's wisdom saying in the intersection? Verse 23, turn, turn. That's what you do at an intersection, right? You turn, everybody say turn. That's what wisdom is crying out, crying out turn. Now, the more I looked at this and the more I studied this, the more I began to realize there are reasons that people all the time, every day, are missing their turns. One of the first times I ever saw this, Sarah and I were youth pastoring at my parents' church. We did that together for a number of years. And I was talking to teenagers and I talked to them about this a lot. I talked to them at, about standing at the crossroads of spirit and flesh and how every single day of your life, you will stand right there at that crossroad and you'll have to make a decision. Do I yield to the willingness of my spirit or do I yield to the weakness of my flesh? Jesus himself stood at that crossroads in the garden shortly before the cross. Do you remember it? Crying out, my father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me. But then what did he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He turned around from there and went to the disciples. And of course, he saw them praying in tongues and they were fasting and interceding. <laughs> what were they doing? Sleeping, sound asleep. And he said to them, could you not watch and pray with me? He said, you need to watch and pray that you enter not into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And for years I thought, yeah, guys, wake up. Your spirit's willing to pray, but your flesh is weak and wants to sleep. And there's certainly an application to that. But I believe Jesus was showing them and us what he was going through. Because he turned right around from there, went back to pray again and cried out that same thing. He's standing right there at that crossroads and the weakness of his flesh. And he had flesh just like you. And the weakness of that flesh is pulling him in this direction. I don't want to go through this. I don't want to have to endure this. But the willingness of his spirit cried out even louder. Not my will, but yours be done. He's standing right there at that intersection. And he's not about to miss his turn. And we would talk to teenagers about standing at this crossroads and how oftentimes some, somebody else takes you by the hand and brings you right to that crossroads of spirit and flesh through what they said to you, how they treated you, the way they acted towards you. And you have to make a decision. What's going to come out of my mouth? What's my response going to be? Do you know what? Since that time, after having youth pastored so long ago, do you know what I've discovered? Full-blown adults need to hear this same thing. Amen. Every day, you and I are standing right there at that crossroads. And life is full of these intersections. Now, you know, as well as I do, there are some intersections that you go through, small town intersections. It might be one blinking light that they installed after 100 years of one stop sign. 
There's big news in the city. And you go through that intersection, you might not see another person, might not see another car, and it's, it's easy. But there are other intersections that we arrive at, like this scripture's talking about, that are noisy. But there's a lot going on there. What does that say? That says to me that wisdom is not the only voice crying out in that intersection. That there's other voices, other things for you to give your time, your attention, your affection to. And when the, the writer here was talking about these things, you notice what wisdom said. She said, how long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? Do you want to know what the word simple means? A simple person. It's not just ignorant or anything like that. It's the word literally means easily seduced. You study it out and you're going to find that it actually means open-minded. Open-minded. Now that's interesting because we're living in a culture right now that is preaching open-mindedness. And you have to be open. If you're not open to this or you're not open to that, you're a racist. You're a thisophobe and you're a thataphobe. And if you're not open and if you're not open, you need to be open and you need to be open. Now, I don't have to be open to you, but you need to be open to me. Preaching open-mindedness. But that's simplicity, the scripture says. You can be too open. Too open to other doctrine, too open to other ways of thinking, too open to things that are outside of the word of God. Amen. Look, folks, my mind is wide open. If you can find it from here all the way to here, baby, I'm wide open to it. Wide open. But I don't have to be wide open to just any old voice and anything that this world decides it wants to preach at me. I don't have to be open to it. Simplicity is being too open, easily seduced. It's the inability to discern. You see this word a lot in the Proverbs, discernment. It's the inability to discern what's actually valuable, what's actually true. What's actually right. And it takes the wisdom of God. It takes the understanding that comes from being full of the Holy Ghost. Full of the Holy Spirit. It takes that to have this kind of discernment. That when you see and you hear different voices. You have the ability to tune one out and tune one in. We could stand in a crowd this size or bigger and it could be loud, it could be noisy, but I guarantee you this, if my wife or one of my children start calling my name, I'd hear them because I'm tuned to those voices. They're familiar to me. I know them. You can be that way with Jesus. <laughs> Didn't he say in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The shepherd calls his sheep by name. And then what does he do? Leads them out. He calls them by name and he leads them out. He said, a stranger's voice, they won't follow. You will not follow a voice that's strange to you. You'll follow the one that you're most familiar with. But it's upon you and I to become most familiar with this voice. The voice of God himself speaking to us through his word and by his spirit. Amen?
feel like I'm preaching just a little bit better than, than you're shouting. The reason I'm saying this to you this morning is because I know I'm not the only one standing at this crossroad. I don't know many of you, but I guarantee you, if we sat down and went over your story, you stood at a crossroad before you arrived here. There were decisions to make, right? There were things to leave and things to pursue. And it may not have been the easiest decision you ever made, but there was something and someone calling you this way. I believe there are a number of reasons people miss their turn in these intersections. A lot of it, you can go back and draw parallels to naturally speaking. Why do people just operating a car miss their turn? Let me give you a couple of them. And we could take time to go through scripture after scripture on each of these, but I want you just to be thinking about them because I don't want you missing your turn. Some of you are first year, maybe you're gonna be here for another couple of years. Some of you are second year, maybe this is the last year. Some of you are third year and there are decisions to be made right now. And I don't want you leaving this place missing your turn. I tell you, one of the big reasons people miss their turn is they got bad directions. Now, I sort of feel bad for my kids and different ones of this younger generation because as long as they have a satellite signal, they'll never be lost. They'll never experience that cold sweat dripping down your back going, I don't think I know where I am. They'll never be without Siri's voice saying, turn here, turn here. But there was a time not that long ago that if you were in a place and you wanted to go to another place that you'd never been, you either had to get out a map or ask somebody that had been there before. And if you were asking somebody how to get there, I mean, think about this. Think about how we used to live. We just used to take people's word for stuff. And they said, here's what you're going to want to do. You want to pull out, turn left, go three miles, take another right, and then stay on that road for about 17 miles. Then you're going to take a left and then a left and then a right, and then so on and so on and so on. But you, you follow all those directions to a T. Well, what happens if they forgot one left turn? Just one. I mean, you are not going to end up where you wanted to be. Why? Bad directions. Bad directions. You're in Proverbs Look ahead again at chapter four, verse 20. What did he say? My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart for they are life to those that find them and health to all their flesh. Now, normally when we read this, these verses together, our emphasis here is on the words and it's words that are life. It's the sayings from the word that are health to your flesh. Let me put the emphasis in a different place for you and see if it means something in addition to that. Ready? Listen to this. My son, give attention to my words. Do you hear that? Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart for they are life to those that find them and health to their flesh. When you read it like that, it goes to show you, it really backs up what chapter one's already said. There are a lot of words out there you could be listening to. There are a lot of things being preached at you from different places. But the important thing is your ability to tune those out and this in. Why? These are good directions. 
these directions will get you to your wealthy place. Amen. But people miss their turn all the time. Why? Bad directions. Let me give you another reason I believe people miss their turn. Moving too quick. You ever been flying at 70 miles an hour? And Siri says, turn right, right here, right now, 90 degrees. Man, if you are going that fast and you got to make a turn like that, you're just going to blow right past it. I believe one of the big reasons people are missing their turn in the spirit, in their life, in their walk with God, is they get to moving too quickly. Jesus demonstrated this. When he was with his disciples and word got back to him and said, Lazarus, the one whom you love is sick. You know what Jesus did as soon as he heard that? Nothing. For two days, stayed right where he was. Even those disciples were like, are we going? He's sick, we better go. Jesus sat right where he was for two days. Now we could talk all about this story, but I believe one of the points that you and I can draw out of this is that sickness doesn't tell Jesus where to go. Jesus tells sickness where to go, but it's not the other way around. He's not letting sickness or disease dictate to him where he goes and what he does. I don't do anything, he said, until I see my father do it. And do you realize it was his patience just slowing down, slowing down on the inside? Because again, there's flesh involved here. There's soul involved. What's your response when somebody you love is in a bad situation? Somebody you love is sick. Man, that, that fight or flight thing kicks in. That panic mode kicks in. Well, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. Do you? What use are you in this situation? Freaked out. What use are you in this situation? Panicked. Without a clear ear to hear what the wisdom of God would say. Slow down. Slow down. And do you realize it was Jesus' patience in this situation that resulted in the greatest manifestation of the glory of God in his ministry outside his own resurrection? That's what slowing down did. People miss their turns, just get to moving too quick. So people miss because of bad directions. People miss because of moving too quickly. There are a number of reasons we could go through. Let me give you this last one before we take a break. People miss their turn because they don't like being told how to drive. You know, this word on course correction is a really exciting thing until you realize, wait a second, there might actually be some correction involved in this course correction. But wisdom said it. She said, turn at my rebuke. Well, that doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound nice. That's correction. And wisdom will talk to you all along the way. But if you're flying at 70, 80, 90 miles an hour through life and wisdom knows there's a turn coming, maybe a couple of miles in advance, wisdom would say there's a turn coming. Half mile out, wisdom's going to say there is a turn coming. You get closer to that and wisdom's going to say, turn here. That's correction. That's rebuke. But people don't like being told how to drive. People don't like being told where to go. 
But the scripture says to us in the book of Hebrews, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he corrects, he rebukes. He chastens that one like a father does his son or his daughter. So that says to me that if we're not open to the correction of the Lord, correction not just coming from him in your own quiet time, that's a good thing, but are you open to correction from a minister? Are you open to correction from an elder, from a leader? Oh, I just get it all from Jesus. Really? Really? That's, that's convenient. I would say this to you. If all you ever hear from God is exactly what you want to hear or expect to hear, you're not listening. Because there is correction. We all need it. And whom the Lord loves, he corrects. So if you're not open to this correction, be it from him, be it from the fivefold ministry, from elders, leaders, teachers, if you're not open to that correction, then there is a facet of the love of God that you are not experiencing. And there's a facet of your relationship with him as your father that you are not experiencing. All because of a hard heart, unwilling to receive correction. People miss turns because they get bad directions, because they're moving too quick, because they don't like being told how to drive. There's a number of these reasons. We're going to spend some time on a big one in our next session. But I am so determined in my life, for my family and my ministry, I'm not missing this turn. I am more tuned into the voice of the wisdom of God than I ever have been in my life. And you better believe we shut some stuff down. We've shut some television down. We've, we've shut some entertainment down. All in an effort to tune that junk out and this stuff in. I don't want you missing your turn. Anybody else with me? You don't want to miss a turn. The same spirit of God that led you here will lead you out of this place. And if you listen, when the wisdom says turn, 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 you'll end up in a wealthy place. Praise the Lord. Do I need to let you go right now? What do we have? I have seven minutes. Okay. Seven minutes. I had the wrong time in my head. Are you getting anything out of this so far? Thank you, Lord. Wisdom is crying out. Why don't we just say it out loud right now? Father, in Jesus' name, I open my heart to your voice, to your spirit, to your wisdom. Speak to me. I will listen. I will obey. I will tune in your voice and I'll tune out every other voice. The voice of a stranger, I will not follow in Jesus name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, we worship you. We praise you. We magnify you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're talking this morning about why people miss these turns as they stand there in these intersections. Again, the Amplified Bible says it like this, that wisdom cries aloud in the street, raises her voice in the market. She cries at the head of the noisy intersections. Don't you notice how many of these, these locations have to do with just being out there in the road? Intersections, streets, crossroads, where paths meet. The scripture, especially the book of Proverbs and a lot of the book of Psalms, 
has much to say about the path, the path of the just, the path of righteousness. Psalms talks about the path that seems right. Excuse me, I believe it's Proverbs. The path that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. There's a way that seems right. There's a path that looks on the surface like the right path to take. What would make that look like the right path? Well, that's the path daddy took. That's the path mama went down. That's the path this guy went and look at all the money he's got. There's a path that looks right. But if you take the path just based on how it looks, you're going to end up in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing with the wrong people. Our kids are in here this morning. You know, one thing we say to them almost on a daily basis, we end every day putting them to bed and we pray together. And one of the things we say at the end of every prayer, and we say it together, Father, by your help, by your grace, we will be in the right place at the right time doing the right thing with the right people. And I'm putting this in my children now at, at ages eight and five. I want this in their hearts. I want this ingrained in them. And even though most of their life at this point is spent right here with us, right at our side, you know, we drop them off at school. We're not with them there, but we're there to pick them up. So every other waking moment, they're right there with us. But I'm also well aware that there's a time coming called the teenage years when they're not so right there all the time. And what I want them hearing when I'm with them and when I'm not is dad's voice. And I say, guys, ask yourself these questions. If you're ever apart from us, ever away from us, just go through these quick questions. Am I in the right place? Is this the right time? Am I doing the right thing? Are these the right people? And I said, listen, if the question to any of the answer to any of those questions is ever no, come home, come home. Because being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing with the right people will save your life. How many people's lives have been cut off or cut short or impacted in a horrible way just because they were in the wrong place? at the wrong time, or just because they weren't doing the right thing, or just because the people they were with weren't the right people. These things are important. And how much of wisdom's voice is crying out to us in, out there in the road, in the street where we're living life. I want you to see this played out very clearly in the book of Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, now as he, talking about Jesus, was going out on the road. Where was he? On the road. As Jesus was going out on the road, Mark 10, 17. One came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So let the word of God paint a picture for you here. Jesus is on his way out of town. He's on the road that leads out of town. And this guy comes running. Come on, get the picture here. He comes running. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of desperation in this guy. He comes running, not only just run and find Jesus, he kneels before him, drops to his knees on this dirty road at the, at the feet of Jesus and begins to ask him this question. He says, good teacher, and you couple this with the other accounts of the gospels, he says, good teacher, what good thing 
must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded to him, and it always puzzled me the way that Jesus responded to him. He said, why do you call me good? There's none good but one, and that's God. Now, I always thought that was an interesting response from Jesus, because I'm like, no, Jesus, you're good too. Don't say that. But I believe what Jesus was doing was questioning this young man's definition and concept of what's actually good. Because listen to the way he came to him. Good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, was Jesus a good teacher? Yeah. But was he a lot more than that? Yeah. And this guy put his good deeds, what good thing do I have to do, on the same level as Jesus' goodness and they don't belong on the same level. And that's why Jesus said, why are you calling me good? What's your concept of good? But listen even deeper to the question. What good thing do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now he's after the right thing. And you know from the rest of this story, he's a rich man. I should say it like this. He's got some stuff. Not necessarily a rich man, but he does have some stuff. He's got some financial means, some material means. So he's got some stuff, but yet there's this God-shaped hole on the inside. This hole that's empty and he knows what it needs to be filled with. He called it by name. What do I do to inherit eternal life? But since he came to Jesus based on what do I do, Jesus had to respond to him based on what you do. And Jesus talked to him about the commandments. And the guy said, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, I've done all that. I've kept all that from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him. There was compassion that rose up in Jesus. And whatever Jesus is about to say to him is coming out of that place of love for him. But if you go back and dig a little deeper, just, just listen to his question. Just pick his question apart. See if you can figure out maybe where he's coming from. I'm going to say some things. And if you feel like I'm taking too much liberty with the scripture, then forgive me. But, but let's, just, let's just look into it and see if we can draw some truth out of it. Good teacher, what good thing do I do to inherit eternal life? So we know he's got some stuff. And the Bible also calls him the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus with this concept of inheritance on his mind. What would that stand to reason? How else does a young man, especially at this time, come into some material wealth? Maybe some inheritance, right? Maybe he has a good understanding of what you can gain just through inheritance. And honestly, that's the right word. Inheritance is the right word when it comes to talking about what God has made available to us through Jesus. It's inheritance. By faith and patience, we inherit the promise. Inheritance is the right word. But the question is flawed. He says, what do I have to do to inherit? 
Inheritance is not something that's supposed to belong to you based on what you do. Inheritance is supposed to belong to you based on who you are. Just being a son. Just being a daughter. Inheritance, check this out, is something that belongs to you that somebody else worked for. Are you with me? There are things that belong to us as believers. Righteousness. Our salvation, our redemption, our healing, our deliverance, our prosperity, our peace, our joy, our abundance. All of these things belong to us, not because we worked for them, but because Jesus did. Because Jesus did. It's something that belongs to us that he worked for. But this guy comes to Jesus with this question, what do I have to do to inherit I, I just wonder if that might be a glimpse in through the window of maybe his relationship with his dad. I mean, how many times have we seen that played out where a father has something to leave to a son or a daughter, but he's not willing to leave it just because of who they are. He ex, he's wanting more. He says, no, if you want this, you'll have to do that and that and that and that. See, I've got, I've got a, a grandfather, I've got a father who believed the word, believed that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I got a grandpa who believes that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so thankful that I've got a grandpa that believes that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Anybody else in here got a grandpa like that? Anybody else got a rich grandpa in here? Raise your hand. Oh man, you got to get one. They are awesome. If you don't have one of those, you got to get one. They're amazing. No, listen to me. You got something better than a rich grandfather. You're, you didn't hear me. You've got something better than a rich grandfather. You've got a heavenly father who is so wealthy beyond your wildest imagination and has left everything to you. But it's not based on what you do. It's based on being a son. It's based on being a daughter. It's no wonder that when Jesus heard this, he looked at him and he loved him. That compassion rose up in him. And he looked at him and he said, one thing you lack. Wouldn't you love to hear that from Jesus? Just one. That's it. Just one. One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell what you have. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. That's important. Come take up your cross and follow me. That word follow me. Those are the two greatest words that have ever fallen on human ears. As they've come out of the mouth of Jesus. Follow me. And every man, woman and child. Ever since the resurrection of Jesus. Will hear those words from him. Every one of us will be given the opportunity to follow him. Now there were those in his earthly ministry that heard those words right out of his mouth, in the flesh, in the natural. There were those that heard those words, follow me. Now, not everybody did, but there were those that did. Follow me. And this guy is getting that ultra rare invitation from the mouth of Jesus himself, come follow me. And if you look these words up, you know what, I, what they mean? Come take the road that I'm taking. Join me on the road that I'm on. 
It's a compound of two words. One of the words means unity. The other word literally means road. You put them together and it means let's be on this road together. I'm inviting you to be on this road. What's happening right here? Whether this guy realizes it or not, he's at an intersection. Quite literally in the road. He's on his knees in the road. Anybody else seeing this? And Jesus says, let's make a turn. I'm going this way. You've been going that way. Let's go this way. But what happened? Jesus extended this invitation to him. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come take up the cross and follow me. Verse 22. But he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He was sad at the word and he went away. Notice how many directional things are taking place here. This guy came running to Jesus on the road. Jesus says, let's take this road. And this guy went away. All this is directional. He didn't join Jesus on this road. He went away down another road. Completely missed his turn. Totally missed it. If he had just hung around for, I don't know how many, few minutes, five minutes, because Jesus, after he walked away, looked around and said to his disciples, verse 23, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were astonished at his words. And Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. When you live as a person dedicated to the plan of God, committed to following him, taking the same road Jesus is taking, and he's prospered you materially, financially, you are living a life that Jesus said is only possible with God. Does that make sense to you? It's only possible with God. Only God can make that possible for you to love Jesus and be blessed materially, financially, and naturally. Peter, in verse 28, began to say to him, see, we've left all and followed you. We left everything and followed you. And if this guy who had come to Jesus with a real heart, a genuine heart, a hungry heart. If he had hung around for just a few minutes, you want to know what he would have heard Jesus say? Verse 29, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come. What's the next two words? What are they? Shout it out. What did he come to Jesus looking for? Eternal life. Called it by name. I want to inherit eternal life. And if he had just hung around, if he hadn't got hung up on the stuff, the stuff, 
but he lacked the ability in that moment of time to correctly discern what's most valuable. And it goes all the way back to what Jesus called him on in the beginning. Do you really know what's good? Do you have any idea what's actually good? Because when Jesus said, go your way, sell what you got, give to the poor. Come on, just get free. Get free, man. Come on. Follow me. Why, Jesus? I'm going somewhere. I want you with me. Come on. If he had any ability whatsoever to discern value, to discern what was actually good, he would have left that stuff in a moment, pursued Jesus, and just a few minutes later, he would have found out, wait a second, I qualify for, what'd you say? A hundredfold? Come on, Jesus, explain that to me because like five minutes ago, I left everything. I left it all and I'm following you. Tell me more about this hundredfold. I want to hear more about this hundredfold return. And, and it's not later on, it's now in this time. And Jesus would have been able to explain to him. He would have said, yeah, what you need to understand is that leaving something is not losing something. If you leave something for my sake and for the gospels, you're not losing it, you're sowing it. And now in this time, I'm going to add to you a hundredfold of what you left. See, this gets me excited when I talk to a room full of people who move from all over the place to come be up in the mountains for a few years of their life, leave everything, leave everyone, leave house, leave home, leave family, leave job. And having told people, yeah, I'm going to Bible college. And have to listen to people say, why don't you go to real college? And you had to endure that. And you made, many of you have that left a good paying job. Many of you left a nice house, a big house. Many of you left some so-called stability, some so-called security, some so-called comfort. There was a time in our lives when Sarah and I were on staff with my grandparents in their ministry. Somebody say job security. That was a great gig. And that's, that's an irreverent way to talk about it. I shouldn't say that, but I will say that it was easy to be there. And there was a long time that I thought, this is where I'll be forever. Until the night before Thanksgiving, 2009, Sarah and I are laying in bed next to each other, staring up at the ceiling, and all of a sudden, vision starts coming out of us. And she's talking, and I'm talking, and then at one point, it quits being her, and it starts being Jesus, talking through her to me. And then he begins to speak through me to her. And we laid there that night dreaming about having our own place, and having our own team, and having our own ministry, and stepping out into some things. And I laid there going, am I even allowed to talk about this stuff? because I've just had this one way of thinking for so long. I'm going to be here. I'm going to serve this place. And that's a good thing. It'd be a good thing to stay there. It'd be a good thing to serve there unless Jesus showed up and said, I'm going this way and I want you with me on this road. Yes. Yes. We sought the Lord about it and we, we prayed. We went to my grandparents we submitted it to them. And I truly mean that. We submitted it. We said, this is what we believe we're hearing. We submit this to you. We didn't march in and say, sayonara, suckers. No, we said, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't do it. I value them too much. And said, I submit this to you. Pray through this with us. Talk through this with us. They said, this is good. This is God. And months later, 
They launched us out. Justice was born in May of 2010. Pearson's Ministries International was launched in September of 2010. So that's what you do, right? Have a baby, quit your job. (laughs) And for the longest time in talking about that and leading up to that, I would tell folks as we were getting ready to transition, I'd say, yeah, we're just getting out of our comfort zone, just getting out of what's comfortable, just getting out of our comfort place here. And finally, the Lord spoke up in me and said, you better quit saying that. I gave you the comforter. And if you are somewhere other than where I've told you through him to be, that's not comfort. It changed my words like that. And we left home. We left home. In the book of Luke, chapter nine, I believe, Jesus, just like he was with this guy out on the road, and he said to one, follow me. Same two words. And you know what this guy said? Lord, let me first. Let me first go home and bury my father. And Jesus responded and said, okay, I understand. Family comes first. Is that what he said? He said, you let the dead bury the dead. You go now and preach the kingdom. That doesn't sound like a very sweet thing to say. But you study this out and you're going to find that this isn't exactly a reference to like my father's sick and dying at home. Let me go help him through these last few days. This was let me go home and just wait till he's gone. This goes right back to living under the expectation of what somebody else expects you to do. And if he if that voice of influence is gone, then I can do what I want. But he said to Jesus, let me first go home. Let me first go home. This alliance and allegiance to family before Jesus. He said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first go home and bid farewell to them that are at my house. Isn't that interesting? Both of these individuals told Jesus, me first. And their excuse was home. Home was pulling on them. The security of home. The familiarity of home. Dependence on who's at home. And Jesus didn't have sweet words for him either. He said, any man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Let me ask you something. Are these guys loved by Jesus? Of course, there's human blood coursing through their veins. You know they're loved by Jesus. Are these guys called by Jesus? Quite literally, he just said it, follow me. But Jesus said, I love you. This is what he's saying. I love you, I'm calling you. But as long as there's something you wanna do before responding to this call, I can't use you. You're not fit. You're not in shape. You're not in a condition that I can use. Anybody putting his hand to the plow and looking back. Why would somebody do that? Because plowing's hard. You're plowing up hard ground. Everybody gets excited about the seed time and harvest principle. Sow your seed, reap your harvest, glory to God, hundredfold. But do you realize that plowing is as much a part of the sowing process as actually sowing? 
As a matter of fact, if you try to sow on unplowed ground, it will sit right on the surface and the birds will come and take it. The ground's got to be plowed. So somebody gets all excited about sowing and reaping and they look out there at that ground and think, I'm going to plow that ground and I'm going to sow my seed and I'm going to reap my harvest and I'm going to be rolling in it. And they grab that plow and they start and eight feet later, a tree stump, a rock, something hard in the way, some stubborn mule that won't move. And they realize all of a sudden, this was easier when daddy plowed. This was easier at home. That's why they look back. Looking back. In other words, I'm done plowing. But you're in a place that's equipping you to plow ground. Many of you are, have been called here so that you can be called back out of here into places where the ground is hard and the soil is hard. And it needs to be plowed. Why? Because seed of the word has got to be sown in that place, in that city, in that community. But the ground's going to have to be plowed. And Jesus is going to have to be able to depend that you aren't going to be looking back for home, calling back on people at home, walking away from the assignment. He's saying to you this morning, I love you. I'm calling you. But you tell me if I can use you. Are you willing to put your hand to this plow and not look back? If this guy, this one called the rich young ruler, had hung around long enough, he would have heard Jesus say that nobody has left anything. And then what are the things he, he identified? What's the first thing he said? No one who's left house. What else? Brother. Sister, father, mother, family. Jesus is identifying the hook that family tries to get in you and hold on to you. And it's not because their motive is bad. It's more just the place and your dependency on the place. But that's what had to shift and change in me and Sarah when we stepped out into our own. I told my grandparents, I'm not, I'm not leaving you. I'm not changing my commitment to you and to serve you. But I just, I'm asking to no longer be your employee. I want to be your partner. I don't want to be, I, I'm still committed to you. I'm just changing my dependence. I don't want to be dependent on you anymore. I want to depend solely on Jesus and on his word. And for me, that meant leaving employment. And you know, for eight months, she and I didn't take a paycheck. Brand new baby at home. No paycheck for eight months. And to this day, I do, not, I do not know how to explain. But not only did we not go backwards financially, but we went up and up and up. To now all these years later, what's coming into our house is multiple times what it was in that secure place. What's going out of us into other places, into other ministries. We couldn't have done this. We couldn't have done this being where we were. Dr. Lillian B. Yeoman said that God delights in his children. Stepping out over the aching void with nothing beneath their feet but the word of God. He loves it. He loves it. 
there was an unwillingness this day to leave some stuff. And because of it, he, he missed his hundredfold return. But Peter said to him, we've left all and followed you. You go back to the, to the day Jesus met some of these guys. And he walked up to them and said the same thing. Follow me. Follow me. No additional information. No, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm doing. Just follow me. Actually, some of the disciples got a little bit more information. It was pretty cryptic. I'll make you fishers of men. What's that mean? You and I have the luxury of 2,000 years of understanding that they didn't. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I mean, what if these guys were professional painters? What would Jesus have said then? But he said, I'll make you fishers of men. And you know what the scripture says they did? Left their net and followed him. That net. These guys weren't fishing for fun. This was not recreational fishing. This is fishing for a living. This is their dependence. Food on the table. Money in the bank. And it says they immediately left their net and followed him. What if he had said, follow me? And they said, uh okay, and started walking after him with that net in hand. Jesus turns around and says, guys, what's with the net? And they said, well, in case this fishers of men thing doesn't exactly pan out, then we've got this to fall back on. That's what a net is. You think about these guys who climb these towers in a circus and under the tent, they go walking across that high wire and everybody's ooing and aahing. But you realize if you look just like a few feet down, there's this massive net down there. And I mean, let's say the guy falls. What's the worst that's going to happen? Like a run in the tights, maybe. There's just not, there's no real risk involved here. But you take one of these guys who stretches out that cable across, I don't know, the Grand Canyon without a net, that changed everything. That risk factor just went way up. And Jesus is calling us to follow him, but he's saying, leave the net. Let me be your net. I want to be the one you fall back on. He came to some others and he said, follow me. And they were mending their nets. That ought to tell you something about whatever you've been using as a net. It requires mending. You are only as strong as whatever you have faith in. And if you've got faith in a busted, broken net, how strong are you? And yet people are hearing the call, specifically the call into ministry, the call to serve the Lord and serve his people. And they say to him, Lord, I'll go, but let me first get some money in the bank. Let me first get the kids through school. Let me first, let me first, if I have some money, then I'll have something to fall back on. And he's saying, I want to be the net. Those guys who were mending their nets, when Jesus said, follow me, you know what they left? Their dad in the boat with the net left home. And Jesus says, I love these guys. I've called these guys and I can use these guys. I mean, you compare, contrast this to 
this guy here who, who heard Jesus' word and walked away sad at it. I want you to think about that, but then think about the one that Jesus talked about, the guy who was digging in a field. Do you remember him? He was out working in a field and he found treasure in the field. And the Bible says that Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of heaven's like. So like a guy who found treasure and for the joy over it. This is different than the man who walked away sad. This is somebody who for the joy over it went and sold all that he had and bought the field. He, he liquidated, he got rid of everything. The exact same thing Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do, but he walked away sad. This guy got so excited about it that he went and gathered everything he could, sold it all and bought the field. Imagine that conversation, gentlemen, with your wives when you get home. She comes home to an empty house because you've sold everything. And she says, where's our stuff? Where's our stuff? What'd you do with my stuff? He said, I sold it, baby. I sold it. It's gone. She says, why did you sell our stuff? And he says, okay, you ready? I'll tell you why. Oh, you're going to love it. I bought a field. <laughs> you bought a what? I bought a field, baby. I bought a field. And she's like, my mother was right. My mother was right. I should never... <laughs> I married you, you madman. I bought a field. He's like, no, 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 you gotta come see it. You gotta come see it. He walks her out to the road and stands at the edge of that field. And he's standing there grinning, looking at his field. She's standing there with this worried look on her face. Here come the neighbors. This time, by this time, the community's heard all of it. And thinking, that's that guy. That's that idiot that sold everything and bought a field. Look at it. It's worthless. It's a patch of dead grass and some rocks and dirt and an old dying tree. This guy's a moron. He's an idiot. Yet he's standing there smiling ear to ear for the joy over what he's found. Help me out. Everybody's looking at the surface of the field. What's he looking at? The treasure in it. And Jesus said, that's the kingdom of heaven. That's it right there. Somebody who sees the treasure in it. But it works both ways. You see the treasure in the kingdom and you're willing to go all in for it. But help me out here, folks. Has this ever been demonstrated for us? What did our heavenly father do? Because he saw treasure in you. Did he not go all in? Did he not give Jesus the most precious, the most valuable, the most rare thing he possessed? The more rare something is, the more valuable it is, right? Yeah. Right, fellas? That's the reason we spend all this money on these diamonds because they're so rare. <laughs> Meanwhile, every other hand in this room has one on it. <laughs> so rare. But the more rare something is, the more value is attributed to it. What did Jesus say? For God so loved the world that he gave his, what's the next word? Only. The only one. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Legacy TV podcast. We hope you enjoyed this. And if you'd like to hear more of Jeremy and Sarah, subscribe to this podcast and download the Legacy Studios app. From there, you'll have access to the Legacy Television broadcast, the Legacy Letter magazine, and so much more. 
You can also visit pearsonsministries.com to contact us directly and find out how you can get involved with everything that's happening here at Legacy Studios. Be blessed today. We love you. Remember, you are always welcome here in the house of faith. Thank you.